0: Hello, God's peace. Welcome to our podcast. I am your host, Pastor Nicholas Candle, and this is the fifth episode of our podcast. Today, we're joined by Pastor Jamin, Pastor Jason Salmi of the Vancouver Apostolic Lutheran Church and Jamin Holmgren of Hawkinson, Washington. Jamin and Jason, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. Um, so, When Luther wrote his small catechism, in the preface he says that he did so because of the deplorable, miserable condition which he discovered when he had been visiting around in the countryside. That's just how I imagine it. Um, He looked and he saw that some people were taking the sacraments, they were getting baptized, but they didn't understand and could not recite the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, or even the Ten Commandments. And so he wrote this catechism as a tool for people. Uh, One thing that I was kind of surprised to know as a child growing up in the Apostolic Lutheran Church, reading that catechism, once I became an adult, um, I heard somebody say that each article of the faith is as the head of the household should teach his children. Luther didn't write this as a Bible study tool or as a... uh, Dogmatic text so that we could have theological arguments, but he wrote this as a tool for teaching children. Just a fun fact. So, we're going to be digging more into this today with Jamin and Jason. Uh, But my first question then is for Jason. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, How things been with you lately and growing up?
1: Good. Yeah, absolutely. A little bit about myself. Grew up in Chassel, Michigan. Uh, my parents, Robert and Carol Salmi, still live there in the same house I grew up in. Uh, got to Washington by way of the United States Marine Corps, spent about six years uh, serving there. Uh, and I've, I've been in Washington for oh, uh, something like 15 or 16 years, something like that. And, and things have been going well lately, considering it's a, uh, it's a unique time in, uh, in, in world and in American history. So, uh, but things are going well.
0: I went to seminary in the UP. And uh, I usually say that that's the place where it's always winter and never Christmas. Was that your experience also?
1: I personally love the winter uh, if I if I didn't actually have to, to have a job where, where I need to get around or, or something like that, or if I could go to work on a snowmobile, uh, I, I absolutely love the U.P. Um, it has a relatively slow economy, which makes it challenging to uh, to live back there. But other than that, it's it's a place I, I really uh, dearly love.
2: You know, I, this is a common thing with you peers. Like when I, it's not you What, what's no, the, no, term? sorry. Uh, upers. Upers. Thank you. Uh, you can tell I'm not from there. Uh, upers. When you talk to upers, um, it's like, uh, you know, you know, when you list the attributes of the UP, it's like, what's the attraction, but then you ask any uper, and they're like, yeah, I, I love it there. And so I don't know what it is. There's something magical about that place. That everybody who's from there seems to kind of remember fondly. I do also note, though, there are a lot of people who are from there. They they move elsewhere, yeah,
0: <laughs> so there, there
2: are reasons true. they leave too.
1: Yeah, you bet. And and people, I'm sure, have a lot of different reasons, uh, but. I, I I'm sure just because it is a, a relatively uh, smaller, slower economy that that has to play into it, but if, yeah. if if you love nature, if you love the outdoors, if you love the the woods and the snow and the lakes and all that, uh, it's a phenomenal place uh, yeah. to, to live and, and and to be
2: Now, you don't really have a youper accent though like once in a while, maybe something peeks through, but for the most part, I don't really notice anything. Maybe because I hear you every Sunday, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like you have a Youper accent. You lost it somewhere along the way. Maybe the yeah, Marine Corps I, I, beat it I, out of you.
1: Well, I, I think that that you lose, uh, quite a few people from different regions of the country lose their accents in the Marine Corps. Uh, yeah. And I think that's just the fact of a giant melting pot, everybody yeah. uh, being in there. And and you, you kind of end up with, except for people from Texas, they keep their accent. Uh, <laughs> But but in general, you find kind of that that moderating towards I don't know a generic, yeah, uh, you know, regionless accent or something.
2: So. Well, that kind of happened with World War One, where and I think actually the Civil War as well, where like regional even dialects and languages, full languages were melded together into English, and then World War One kind of made it even more so, like like it was more uh, less about accents and and things kind of became more pulled together. You see a lot of countries around the world that have very distinct accents and dialects between regions, but the U.S. has kind of definitely been more of a melting pot. Sure. Becoming much more homogenous probably over time. For sure.
0: So what about your faith journey? So you grew up in the UP. Did you grow, you, and you said you were raised in the Apostolic Lutheran Church. How, how did that go for you? What's your experience? <laughs> well, my, my route
1: to, to, I guess, where I would find myself today, which I, I, would, I would call myself uh, a confessional Lutheran, um, the, the ALC, the Apostolic Lutheran Church, uh, obviously, um, I, I think most people listening to this podcast would, would recognize the, the great diversity uh, of, of uh, potential doctrinal positions within our, uh, within our, our, our faith community. Uh, but I, I grew up in the Chassel Church originally. Uh, My family eventually uh, found our way to the Tapiola Church, Um, and then it was from there that I kind of left the area, went into the Marine Corps, and when I finally, and it was in the Marine Corps that I finally, I, I believe, came to a true understanding of the Christian faith, moving from merely a fear of God, which is kind of what was my formative understanding of Christianity, moving towards an understanding of and true knowledge of God's love and his grace that had been poured out for me. That happened while I was in the Marine Corps. And so being a bit more disconnected from our communities like that, I kind of naturally found my way into community churches and various places that I was, uh, found myself stationed around the U.S. and around the world. Um, And and from that, and and from the various other theological influences that I would pull in from what I was reading and, and listening to, I, I kind of found myself uh, doctrinally in a place where I would kind of call myself at the time uh, being pretty aligned with the Baptist tradition, uh, leaning towards Reformed uh, within the, the Baptist tradition. And It was only later here, uh, having been in, in Washington State for a while, um, that I, I found the Lutheran confessions... Um, and, and really came to appreciate them and, and now fully embrace them. And, and, and that's kind of where I, where I came from and, and the trajectory that, that got me to where I'm at today.
2: Yeah, so when you say confessional Lutheran, you don't mean you have a lot of sins to confess. What you mean oh, yeah, is, I uh, well, you, you may, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah. that's not what that means. Confessional would be uh, the confessions, which, by the way, our topic today, we'll be talking about uh, a piece of that. But a confession being...
1: Yes, absolutely. So, so the confessions being uh, primarily found in the uh, the Book of Concord. Uh, yes, so you, you find you find the, the the various distinctively Lutheran doctrinal statements uh, compiled together in, in inside the Book of Concord. So, someone who's confessionally Lutheran would say, uh, yes, the Bible is the sole and supreme and only mm-hmm. infallible authority. But the the Lutheran confessions are, uh, as with anything. We have to find ways to to interpret and 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 to um, to to formulate them and in, into a systematic way of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so a confessional Lutheran would say, yes, these act uh, th- th- these accurately teach what the Bible teaches, um, and and so we hold to them.
2: I have actually found uh, your journey, Jason, to be interesting to me because uh, I've been around you for. I don't know, I guess you said about 15 years that you've been in this area. And I remember meeting, I, I probably met you before, but, uh, you know, hanging out with you in my parents' living room. And uh, that was quite a while ago. And it seemed like that was probably prior to you really kind of, uh, attending a alc church full-time i don't remember exactly you and brooke oh yeah
1: no i i i I, uh when i was out here uh even when when uh brooke and i got married we were um attending a a community church uh, Mm -hmm. non-denominational uh from there we we found ourselves in hawkinson church and then eventually Mm -hmm. uh, found ourselves in in vancouver where where we
0: yeah so um jason there was a time actually in my life where you um Emphatically emphatically uh, really blessed me. I, I can't remember the exact situation, but it was probably about 12 years ago or 10 years ago, sorry, 10 or 12 years ago. It was before I went to seminary and we were at a Bible study at the Vancouver Church and we were talking about um, salvation and the nature of faith. And you said to me, I don't remember exactly where it was going or the context of the con- conversation. I just remember how emphatic you were that our salvation was in christ alone and that was something that uh for a young man who was very much being uh you know raised in the apostolic lutheran church uh not that this was expressly taught but it just our human nature just goes that way that our works play some kind of role um you really helped me to understand that nope 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 it's nothing but jesus only and so i i I just i just have this memory of of you uh of you, you being very emphatic in that. So um, I don't know exactly uh, where I'm going with that, but.
1: Uh... Well, that's good. Yeah, I, I, I don't recall the, the, the situation you're talking about, but it, it's absolutely amazing to me that the, the connections that you make with people over time and, and they'll say mm-hmm. that that's something that you said, or, or you'll tell someone else something like, like this. And, and, and we don't even know that God is at work uh, mm-hmm. through us or through somebody else uh, at, at those, uh, you know, important pivotal times um, in, in, our, in our journey of faith. Yeah. So Jason, how did you become a pastor? pastor. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Brooke and I found our way to the Vancouver Apostolic Lutheran Church and uh, some so number of years ago. And um, while we were here, there, there came a point where there was a, a pastoral transition. I was asked to speak um, or be one of the, the, the speakers filling in while, while the church searched for a pastor, and we did that for a couple of years. Um, and then even when we had a, a, a pastor uh, here at the congregation, I was uh, still asked to fill in. So, I, so for a few years, I, I was just speaking part-time at the church, uh, filling in here and there, maybe 10 or 12 times a year, something like that. Uh, Vancouver uh, ended up uh, being in a position where they were looking for a pastor uh, a few years back, and uh, I, probably because of their familiarity with me and, and and the fact that I had already been speaking, um, they asked me if I would step into the role uh, of of being the the pastor full time here. And and both Brooke and I um, felt that at that time um, in our lives and and in our spiritual journey. Um, that it seemed appropriate and right, and and uh, and and I can say that I've never looked back with with any sort of regret uh, at that decision. I, I've been a pastor full time now for uh, four years, and uh, the congregation has just blessed me and blessed my family uh, tremendously. It's truly a, a group of, of Christians that I. I love belonging to since we've been members of the congregation for a while, and, and, and I'm, I'm very humbled and, and blessed to, to serve currently as their pastor.
2: Yeah, Jason is, uh, for those of you listening, Jason is my pastor. We attend the Vancouver church, and I think we started uh, probably about a year after you. I, I do remember being at the annual meeting where you became like the full time pastor rather than interim which you were, I believe you were for a while. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that's, that's been a, 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 a we've appreciated, uh, having you as our pastor. And, uh, the, the interesting thing here is like, did you have any formal training? Like when you stepped into that position there, had you gone to seminary? Did you have any training or kind of where, where did the, how did that happen?
1: No, no, not at all. Uh, and, and just to kind of back things up to where maybe the trajectory to my being here now um, kind of landed, it, I would have to go back um, to that earlier time when, when I was in the Marine Corps, when, when I uh, really experienced and, and began to understand uh, salvation by grace through faith, nothing to do with myself, uh, that, that God had done it all through Christ for me. Um, and, and a weird thing happened because when I was growing up, uh, even though I considered myself a Christian, I, I had no interest in Christianity, no interest whatsoever in studying it, understanding it, knowing it, I kind of just grew up with that idea that, um, th- that it was for Sunday and special occasions and, and, and things like that. But, but it wasn't an active part of my life, but at some point I found that I had this, this interest in studying, and I found myself reading theological books, listening to uh, well. At the time, it was theological radio. There, uh, there, there were no podcasts back then. Um, but I spent a good number of years working in jobs where I had a lot of time on the road, a lot of time in vehicles, and I and I just spent all of my time literally didn't listen to music or anything else, just listening to uh, to to preachers, to speakers, everything and anything that I could absorb. Um, and, and and then uh, when when I uh, kind of had even more time, um, I I dove into I guess it's it's just a personal uh, curriculum of study, um, and 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 just just to be very very transparent, a, a lot of because uh, I don't necessarily have uh, uh, you know I, I didn't go to seminary I, I don't have any of that. Um, a lot of the influence and, and information that I have has come from the LCMS, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. It's a very large Lutheran Church organization, and they put out a lot of material. Um, so even today, a, a, a lot of their material is, is well, it's sitting on my shelf or, or, or uh, things that I listen to. Um, so no, I'm definitely a lay pastor, have not been through, uh, through seminary. Uh, I have been examined and ordained through the central board of the ALC. Um, but the, 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 the vast majority of, of my education has been through an informal route.
0: So I imagine that, uh, when you were driving around after you got out of the Marine Corps, listening to the radio, you weren't listening to issues, et cetera, or table talk radio. You were probably listening to like 104.1, the fish. And, um, so how did you get to a point of absorbing, uh, what, what would you say, um, preaching and teaching that uh, isn't of the Lutheran tradition to being drawn into Lutheran doctrine and teaching?
1: Well, I, I think that one really uh, important thing that, that for anyone from any denomination uh, to, to understand is is that we agree as Christians on the vast majority. Uh, so so if, if you take the Bible, you take the basic doctrines and, and foundations of the Christian faith, we have far more within the, the, the broad Christian church points of agreement than we have of disagreement. So regardless uh, where uh, a lot of that information comes from, there is still the benefit of getting um, some, some good theological grounding and, and foundational understanding of the faith. Um, and it actually wasn't all that much to change from where I was. I would just call myself non-denominational uh, or something like that. To fully embracing and taking on the the, the Lutheran doctrines and the Lutheran confessions, um, it, it was actually Jamin through uh, your dad, Ron Holmgren, Pastor Ron Holmgren was one of the uh, the instrumental people in that process. And I would argue, and I would debate with him from the other side, and he would argue and debate from from a Lutheran perspective. And uh, and, and and at a certain point, I I. I, it kind of clicked with me. I, 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 I think that the very first thing to, to kind of fall into place was, uh, was the means of grace, uh, mm-hmm. understanding the means of grace as means of grace, as those things that uh, truly deliver because they are uh, instituted by Christ, uh, because they, they, they have the promises of Christ uh, attached to them, that they actually deliver to us the grace given to us by God through Jesus Christ um, and, and, and so just that little turn, it was a small turn, a whole lot of things started to fall into place. Mm. And, and that's when I really started to appreciate the cohesiveness of the Lutheran confessions. I, I hadn't understood until then that I was holding some things in tension, you know, that, that I would hold one kind of a theological thought on one side and, and in another conversation or another topic, I would hold something else. But, but you couldn't really put them together um, because there, there was some sort of a discord or disunity. Um, so, yeah. so part of uh, my my love for the, the the Lutheran confessions is is just that uh, that cohesiveness that that brings it all together, and in ways that I can look in the Bible and I can say, I believe this is what the Bible teaches about these these things.
2: Yeah, it's amazing how many misconceptions you might have as a kid or whatever, where there are these things that you do, but they don't have the meaning attached to them, and when you do find that meaning, that is. That, that can be assigned and where they fall into place within the whole salvation story. Uh, it, that was similar to me as well, where I grew up hearing this stuff and my dad had his own kind of, uh, you know, journey through all of this as well. And a lot of it had yeah. to do with reading the church fathers and reading and deep diving into the stuff and saying like, why like we, we read of course Luther's small catechism, which we'll be talking about. Uh, we, we teach that to our, to our young kids. What, what, you know, what, what are the deeper meanings behind all of these things? And I, I feel like that was just very instrumental, of course. And there were some other resources for me as well. Uh, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, who was LCMS as well. Uh, was certainly someone who had an impact on me when I listened to things. And of course my dad as well. So it's, it's, been, uh, it's been an interesting time period over the, I would say, probably the last 20 years that, that a lot of these transitions have happened. So Jason, are there any pastors who
1: have had a big impact on your life that you're in ministry now? So uh, as I mentioned, uh, Pastor Ron Holmgren was, was a very large and, and pivotal influence uh, on me in, in, in more recent years. Uh, but going actually way back, go all the way back to my, my days at the Chastel Church, um, and and this may surprise some people um who who kind of just know the dynamics and, and know the different people and 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 maybe where I uh am doctrinally right now. Uh, but I would hearken back and, and say Carl Kula actually had a an immense impact on me uh as as a as a young child growing up. Um he would come in and 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 he would preach every now and again. He was actually uh the one who confirmed me. Um and one thing that always stood out to me, because I, uh, as, as I had said before, I, I didn't really care that much about learning uh, the, the, the things of the faith or, or something like that. Uh, to me at the time, kind of going through the, the motions was good enough and, and being scared of God, um, you know, because I, I, if there was one thing I knew, I knew that I was a sinner at least. Um, but Carl had a demeanor about him that, that it impacted me as, as a young boy. Um, just the, his, his, um, his nature of being so loving and kind and gentle conveyed to me in a way that few other things could that he cared about my soul. Um, and, 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 and regardless of doctrinal differences that I, I may potentially uh, uh, have on, on some, some points, that stuck with me because it was, again, it was, uh, later in life, when I understood God's love, uh, not, not just the, the, the harshness of the commands or, or commandments or anything like that, but it was when I understood God's love for me. And, and it, 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 in a love that I, I saw early on, uh, uh, saw and heard and felt um, through the, the preaching and the presence of, of Carl back then, I, I think that that stayed with me on a, on a deep level um and 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 you know through those years and and then um was was part of what um what then was brought to the surface when, when i fully understood what uh what he had been conveying all those years ago.
2: Yeah Carl Carl's interesting I, I haven't heard that many sermons but I did growing up we would come to Hawkinson and and I would hear him speak and sometimes at the convention and whatnot. Uh, but he he was I, I came to realize later how he was more Lutheran than I had realized early on. He certainly had a love for history. Uh, he had a, he researched a ton. He was very well read and he specifically Lestadian history uh, going back to uh, all the way back to Listadius in, in uh, like Norway, Finland, Sweden. And uh, so, yeah, uh, he, I think he did have a pretty big impact across the ALC in, and if you, if you listen to his sermons, there were elements there for sure of, of Lutheran theology.
0: So who's, who's your favorite church father or theologian, Jason?
1: Well, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, original or, or come up with, well, how many church fathers are there? Uh, <laughs> but I, I would have to say, uh, Augustine early on, again, when, when I was really starting to, to study the, the Christian faith on a much more deep and personal level, uh, Augustine was, was hugely impactful on me. Um, he was, uh, for those who don't know, he was a North African bishop in the fourth and fifth century um, and, and a very prolific uh, writer and, and a very influential uh, one of the church fathers. But one thing that I loved about him, he was so clear about his own sinfulness um and the fact that he was saved by nothing, uh, save the grace of God, uh, that 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 was um, his uh, kind of his drum that he beat, and and I, I resonated with that and, and still do today.
0: What about uh, what's what's your favorite book? Give us a theological one and a non-theological one.
1: Oh man. Okay, so uh, we'll start with with non-theological, and and I'm I'm kind of a nerd. I'm I've been a a, a bookworm ever since I was uh, young, real real young. Um, and my 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 canned answer is my favorite book is usually the one I'm reading, um, although <laughs> not right now. I, I I am wading my way through Moby Dick currently, and I'm not enjoying it at all. <laughs> uh, but I will finish it. Um, but going, going back, um, I, I recently reread War and Peace and loved it. I was actually, I mean, as long of a book as it is, I, I was just kind of uh, let down when it ended. I, I wanted it to keep going. The, the storytelling, Tolstoy and, and some of those, um, the, those Russian uh, literary figures are just so good at what they do and to tell a story. Um, I, I love that, but I, will slide the scale all the way to, uh, you know, from war and peace to, to sitting on my nightstand right next to it is, is Patrick McManus. Um, Mm, so, you know, uh, (laughs) I, 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 I love, I love the deep and heavy reading and I, I, I am a huge fan of the, the, the light and the humorous as well. Mm -hmm. So how about theological? Um, As far as a theological, uh, theological book, um, uh, the Confessions by Augustine is is definitely one of those those uh, fundamental books that that I would um, that I would point to. But also uh, one that I actually try and reread every single year is the Screw Tape Letters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I I yes, Louis. Re- oh, I you know it, it's not a book that you read to try and learn doctrine or anything like that. But but to me to to take it up and to be re-reminded of the fact that we are in a spiritual battle here while we are on this earth, and everybody is, and the things that are happening all around us, are, th- there are things happening on a plane that we are just generally not in tune to. Um, I-, I love that reminder um, of, of, of what all is going on at all times around us, as well as the the importance uh, of it all, um, and, and, and the, the importance of the fact that uh, that, that we can know for certain that we are saved uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone, um, regardless of 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 what what
0: uh, rages on in the unseen realm around us um, let's let 's transition to our topic. Um, when I grew up with the catechism, um, I grew up studying it um, but I did not grow up learning it for whatever reason i did not understand um, those chief parts. And in my life, the, the time that it came on the forefront was I was attending a um, Baptist youth group because one of my friend's girlfriends went there and I decided to go with them. And in Castle Rock, um, the only youth when I was growing up were me and my two cousins, Jana and Rachel. And so there just wasn't a whole lot of youth activity in our church at that time. And uh, I had branched down to Hawkinson and the big crowds there, but I was still living in Longview. So that's just kind of where I was, but I went to this youth group and the youth pastor there, who's still a good friend of mine, asked me a question. And he asked me, he had grown up in Castle Rock. And so he knew some of my older cousins and was familiar with our church. And he said, so what do apostolic Lutherans believe about baptism? And uh, that was a huge moment in my life because I had no clue. And so thankfully he asked me what do apostolic lutherans believe um because had he asked me what do you believe that would have sent me down a different path so i go home i crawl under my bed i dig out my catechism i turn to the question and answer section about baptism and i read it i go back to him the next day and i say well this is what we believe and uh we have this theological debate that i didn't feel equipped for didn't feel ready for, but I had the answers. And it was just kind of an amazing thing.
2: <laughs>
0: um, and and that comes to uh I think the heart of Luther's intent for um for preparing it, that that people would and that's kind of our intent for this podcast, that people would know what they believe and why they believe it. And it's just such a concise explanation of the scriptures. Really you could say it's a compilation, because that's really what it is. It's just a a big thick volume or a small volume um, with a lot of big impact um, of what the scriptures are. So um, w- one question, why, why is it called the small catechism?
1: Well, as the name may imply, there's also a, a large catechism, uh, which if anyone has a, a book of Concord, you'll find uh, there in those pages um, or you can, you can find it standing alone. But, but Luther's small catechism is, is the smaller condensed version um, that, that is, as he puts it, um, for the, the heads of household to instruct and, and to train uh, their, their children.
2: Yeah, Nick alluded to this earlier in his intro, but Luther at the time found that the state of, of education uh, for children and, and even beyond children in Germany was was pretty bad. It was like people didn't understand basic, just even like basic questions. They didn't understand the basic questions. And he understood the importance of education. He was a doctor of theology. He understood uh, that education was extremely critical. And he basically uh, was like, okay, well, uh, I guess I need to write it. I need to do this. I need to write this and disseminate it. It also, of course, corresponded uh, with, the, with the Gutenberg press, which allowed him to uh, make copies much easier than in the old days in the very old days, I should say.
1: Uh, so if, if, if I can just uh, give it in Luther's own words, he, he, mm-hmm. he tells us in, in his own preface to the small catechism, why he wrote it. And, and after a brief introduction, uh, stating that it's it's for all the faithful and godly pastors and preachers, he says this, the deplorable, miserable condition that I discovered recently when I too was a visitor, has forced and urged me to prepare this catechism or Christian doctrine in this small, plain, simple form. Mercy, dear God, what great misery I beheld. The common person, especially in the villages, has no knowledge whatever of Christian doctrine. And unfortunately, many pastors are completely unable and unqualified to teach. This is so much so that one is ashamed to speak of it. Um, so, so it went all the way from, from the laity all the way up to the, the, the pastors and, uh, and, and the teachers. And, uh, and, and just as, as you, you both have mentioned, this, um, this was uh, something that, that he necessarily had to do uh, because of, of this, this condition. And, and here's the key point, because a little bit later in his preface, he cites James 3.1. Uh, that that that's the footnote to turn to, and this is what James three one says: Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So the the, the concern is for all of the people, and the concern is for primarily those teachers and preachers, those who are going to disseminate the the knowledge, understanding, doctrine of the Christian faith, and 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 Luther just, is just saying, guys. We are accountable before God for how well or how poorly, how faithfully or how faithlessly we discharge this command that we have been given by God as under shepherds over the great shepherd Jesus Christ. We are responsible for the souls of our flocks insofar as we teach and preach the right and true doctrine. Of the, the Christian faith, because outside of that, there is no salvation, um, and and so so it's it's because this is such an absolutely um, critical matter that just that the foundations and the fundamental principles of the Christian faith be truly and well understood by everybody from pastors uh, on down to to the youngest um, uh, believer. Um, th- th- that's why he then prepared the catechism as he did.
2: He didn't seem to mince words when he would give his opinion. It seemed like he would strike right at the heart of it. He didn't really care who he offended when he said it. And but the thing about Luther is he wouldn't just stop there at the criticism. He would also do something about it. He was an incredibly prolific writer and he would, you know, like he said there it's really bad. This is horrible. I guess this is the Holy spirit telling me mm. I need to do something to make it better. And then he just did it. He just wrote it. Um, yeah.
0: I find it, I find it amazing that he, um, wrote it as a tool for parents. Um, and this is something that I think, uh, would, we would do well to, um, as parents to understand and, and, and learn. One thing that blew my mind in seminary was when I learned that, uh, when Sunday school started to become a thing in the church um, there was a a movement against it because people were afraid that um, it would replace parents teaching their children. And unfortunately today, my observation is that that is the case Um, that uh, very many it's, it's so easy for us as parents to send our kids off to Sunday school and that's where they, and, and to church, and that's where they learn the theological concepts, but we themselves don't know them. I can't tell you how many times I've been talking to somebody and they're telling me about things that their kids have said or done and that they had no idea how to deal with. And I mean, I guess that's just part of being a parent that kids are going to ask in very amazing, insightful questions that uh, we ourselves don't even take the time to consider. Maybe that's something Jesus talked about when he meant having faith like a child, but, but the whole idea that this is a tool for fathers, Particularly, but also Mm -hmm. mothers, to teach their children.
1: Well, we we could just say that the primary responsibility in passing on the Christian faith, generation over generation, is from parents to children, and then also as we extend that outward. But um, and and maybe a topic for another podcast is is the the kind of the Lutheran distinctive doctrine of vocation. uh, This understanding of where God places you in relation to other people uh positions of influence and 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 responsibility that he places you and parents have the uh have the 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 primary responsibility for teaching their children the Christian faith now moving out from that we also uh extend and and this is kind of a fourth commandment thing we extend uh that that authority that's given to parents out in concentric circles um, and, and, and that next circle out includes your, your church uh, and, and your pastor and, and Sunday school teachers. But, it, but that never is meant to be a replacement for or a surrogate for uh, the fact that parents have that ultimate and final responsibility.
0: So we as a church have, have, been, have been given this gift of the catechism. As we said, it's divided into um, what Luther saw as the chief parts. The first chief part is the Ten Commandments. And um, this is something that uh, I think is huge for um, people to understand. Um, uh, when, you, when you teach your uh, students, Jason, uh, your confirmation students, the Ten Commandments, um, how do you generally introduce the topic?
1: Well, there, there, there's a couple of ways. And, and I think there is... A, a theological genius to Luther's putting the Ten Commandments first, um, and 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 very often when, when people uh, Christians and otherwise think of the Ten Commandments, you know, it, it is obviously a list of do's and don'ts. It's 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 a list of rules, and the 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 general. Idea that that seems to just for some reason just hang on like a like a pit bull um, onto uh, onto Christians throughout the ages and it doesn't matter where they are is is people have this idea and this is inside and outside of the Christian Church is this idea that Christianity is primarily a system of morality that it's primarily a system of becoming a better person, you know, uh, uh, where, where, where some have the idea that Christianity is primarily um, defined by the list of things you're allowed to do and the list of things you're not allowed to do. Um, but that's absolutely incorrect, and that's most certainly uh, not why the, the Ten Commandments is first, because well, first of all, we understand that, that no one can be saved, as I believe, Nick, you mentioned earlier, no one can be saved in any way by what they themselves do. It is simply impossible. Uh, no, no person um, has the ability to live a sinless and perfect life in order to, uh, to, to be counted as righteous before God uh, on their own. Rather, we are saved only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But putting the Ten Commandments first is, is, uh, I I believe, such a a fascinating um, and and helpful thing because it is by the right distinction of law and gospel that one is a Christian. Um, And and, and just just really quickly going through that, uh, the law is everything that you must do or must not do in order to be righteous on your own if you were in some way able to do it. The gospel is the fact that you are not saved by your own righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness, and his righteousness is is fully applied to you. So dealing with this law-gospel distinction in the Ten Commandments up front before you even deal with anything else um, I, I think is is a beautiful way to to introduce the Christian faith.
0: Right. The law says do this and it can never be done. The gospel says this has been done for you already by Jesus Christ.
1: So one one thing that I have heard people uh, um, say, and I've heard Christians say this is that God would not command anything if we were not able to do it. And when you turn into the Ten Commandments, you find that that is profoundly, um, and, and demonstrably incorrect.
0: <laughs> yeah, at the very first one you find. Yeah, very from page one, basically. Yeah, from the first sentence. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So as we deal with these commandments, this law of God, um, it's, I think, appropriate to deal with how God presents the law in the scriptures. Because one of the biggest objections that I find from atheists or from people who don't tend to understand the faith this is even something that troubled me for a time is that why is it that we seem to follow some commandments and not others like as christians we're very clear that um, adultery is wrong that murder is wrong yet we are more than willing to wear clothes with divided fabric to eat bacon and to deal with those things. So, Jason, is there a distinction in this law, or why why does Luther just have the Ten Commandments and not the whole Levitical law?
1: Yeah, that that's an awesome question. And and uh, just to begin an answer, we we don't just eat bacon now because Luther or someone else thought it would be uh, you know tasty. Um, but what we always want to do is is we don't play with the Bible fast and loose. We, th- th- it's, it's not that we take some parts seriously and other parts we, we take less seriously, but rather we always, always, always allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. So when you look back in, into the Old Testament and, and you read the, uh, the, the earlier uh, books of Moses when, when God was giving his law to the people, today we're going to be kind of keying in on the Ten Commandments, but if you go back there was a lot more than just the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people. And you're right. Some of those things we, we simply do not hold to today. We don't, we don't feel as if they're um, something that, that, we, that we must observe. Uh, but what is really helpful is when, especially when you go into the New Testament, and you see how Jesus and his disciples dealt with the things of the Old Testament, specifically dealing with, with the giving of the law, then you're able to see how uh, the, the, the law that God gave to his people is actually divided into three very distinct uh, categories. Um, so, the, the, the first, we would say, is, is the civil law. Uh, Israel was, especially there at the beginning, a theocracy. Um, they, they originally did not have a king. Um, and even when they had a king, that king was still. Um, under the, the 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 rule and the guidance, very consciously when they were being faithful of God as the as the true ruler of the people Israel, um, and 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 it, it has to be understood that that Israel was that people through whom God had promised His Savior was going to come, and so so there there's a a real uh, critical interest in that line of people remaining distinct so that it would be clear when the Christ comes, he, having come through this line, uh, is, is able to, to, to uh, be recognized for, uh, as the one who holds that office sent by God. So, so the civil law would be all those things that dealt only with the people of Israel uh, uh, up until the coming of Jesus. So, so you have things like no intermarriage, uh, they, they, they were not to, uh, to marry in with other groups of people when they went into different lands or when people came into their lands, they were to remain very, very distinct and separate. And, and the primary reason behind that was, was that messianic line remaining unbroken so that the, the Messiah, the, the Christ, the Savior, could be, could be recognized and, and God was using this people to bring him into, into the world for his own purposes. The second category is ceremonial. Um, and, and this has everything to do with, with the, the, the way of worship of the, the Israelites. Um, everything from, uh, from, from their, their observances and their festivals all the way up to, and, and kind of the pinnacle of it being, uh, of their religious life being the sacrificial system. Um, and, and every bit of that was uh, pointing people in faith towards the promise of God's salvation that he had promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden when, when he told uh, Eve that, that there was going to be enmity between uh, the deceiver and her and her seed, uh, but there was going to be one who had come from this seed that is, that's later going to be kind of refined into the people of Israel. Uh, but the promise was that there was going to be one who, though, uh, though the serpent would bruise his heel, he was going to crush the serpent's head um, and and that is fulfilled in Jesus. When when we look through um, through the Bible, then, then then we we see that that Jesus is absolutely the the complete and full fulfillment of that. He he's the one who is the full and final sacrifice. Which is why we don't uh, offer sacrifices uh, or or anything like like that anymore. and 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 so, but people say, well, why don't you still do these things? How can you know for sure that those were only pointing towards Christ and we maybe are supposed to still keep doing them? Well, we go to to a place like uh, Galatians chapter three, starting at verse 23, where Paul writes, now before faith came, and and that's the fullness of faith, that's the understanding of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Now before faith came, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the civil law, all believers have been absorbed into the, what you call the people of Israel, the, 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 the people of God uh, and, and the ceremonial law, that, that has also been fulfilled uh, in Christ. Mm-hmm. We, we, no longer, we no longer have that. But then we move to the final category, and that is uh, encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. That's, that's kind of the, the condensed version that the Bible gives us of, of God's moral law, which the formula of Concord uh, puts very, very helpfully when it says that the Ten Commandments are the revelation of God's will. Uh, th- th- this is God talking to uh, all people throughout all time upon whom this moral law is binding uh, and, and, and immutable, and it is, it is God's revealing of the way that he has created us, who he is, who we are, how we are to relate to him, how we are to relate to one another. Um, and, and so those, the, the moral law would never be able to be done away with uh, be, because this is, this is God's will then Uh, being, being given to us.
2: Yeah. And and it seemed like Paul was very concerned within Galatians, his letter to the Galatians about this kind of this particular topic uh, way back then where there was a controversy between like, you know, is the Mosaic law for Gentiles, you know, for those who are not uh, Jews. Oh, sure. And, and so this, this was popping up and, I think he meant to clarify it and say, "Hey, this is this is how how you're supposed to how you how you should really be thinking about this."
1: And, and through Acts, you you find those things being broken down as well. That where 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 the Gentiles were being brought in, where the sacrificial system was being done away with, or was already done away with. Where uh, where even the distinction between clean and unclean animals that people could eat that was wiped out with Peter and his his vision of the sheep. So. So, so, so then, uh, I, I guess, just to complete the loop. So we said that, that we know that the civil and ceremonial laws are no longer binding on, on mm-hmm. God's people. So we say, well, what about the moral law? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because, because if everything is fulfilled in Christ, then people have this idea of then we throw off all law. Uh, and, and this is the idea of antinomianism, which is just the, the 25 cent word for no law or against having law. Um, and, 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 and so we say, well, can we find in scriptures that these are still binding on us? Well, yeah, we, we simply turn to the words of Jesus uh, there in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount, um, where, where, as we understand, the, 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 um, the religious rulers had been kind of codifying God's law, chopping it up, binding it into little uh, doable chunks, as it were. Um, so that they could feel as if they were being good and moral people according to the Ten Commandments, uh, and, and Jesus simply wipes that out. He says, you have heard it said, and that that is people's interpretations of what it says, things like, you shall not murder, uh, but then Jesus tells anyone that, that if you even hate your brother or your sister, you call him a fool or an idiot. You're mm-hmm. liable to that commandment. You are li- just as liable as uh, to, uh, according to the, the punishment that, that comes with transgressing God's will, as if you had actually killed the person. So Jesus takes the full weight of the moral law, and he actually increases it. Because this is going to, again, be the, the natural human inclination. Okay, if this law is binding on me, if I still have to do it, then I need to find some way to be able to do it. Um, but then what, what the Bible wants to and what Jesus wants to make very clear is yes it is binding on you but you can by no means keep it uh, not even in the least and there is no human being who is walking planet earth save one who walked planet earth who, who is able to keep this moral law
0: yeah for the listeners if um, you're 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 interested in this um, there's a very entertaining video put out by a youtube channel called lutheran satire and i will put a link to that video in the description <laughs> and it's just an entertaining way to understand this distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law and i think that's very helpful because um uh, i i remember a time in my life where like i said i was very troubled by that distinction someone i was serving at Eastside, i had been to seminary and someone asked me well why do we wear divided fabrics um but then we don't um you know we, why are we allowed to break some of these commandments, but not others? And and it, I stumbled over it and said, you know, I'm going to have to get back to you. I don't really, I don't really know, but I know the same God who wrote the Old Testament is the God, or the same God behind the, the writing of the Old Testament is the same God behind the writing sure. of the New Testament. My answer just wasn't very sufficient. And uh, um, the the other thing that I think is is really um, helpful in understanding that distinction is um, what you said when you said that the moral law is God's will for our life. And this is so huge for young people today to hear and to know and to understand. Um, how many of us want to know what God's will is? We all do. And when I was a younger, when I was a teenager growing up, I wanted to know what God's will was. I wanted to know what he wanted me to do. And I didn't realize that he's been telling me since I was a baby um, that, you know, what, what do I want you to do? I want you to have no other gods before me. I want you to not take my name in vain. Mm-hmm. I want you to honor the Sabbath. I want you to honor your parents. I want you not to kill murder, lie, or commit adultery, or covet. And really, any decision that you're making, this is how you can know what God's will is. If you're thinking about going into a career career field, well, examine your life in light of the Ten Commandments. Will doing this thing cause you um Outright and actually, not not on an underlying level, but um, will that cause you to break one? And this was became very personal for me when I used to be a telemarketer, and hmm. I was making more money than I ever made in my life. Um, but um, and I had told myself that I was only accountable for the work that I did, but I was working for a company that uh, was telemarketing home improvements. And so the only people that answer their phone during the day are usually older. They're usually retired. And then they'd come into your home and force close you to buy these super expensive home repairs. And it didn't hit home to me until I saw um, the name of somebody from my church in Castle Rock on the board. And um, I said, oh, I know those people. That's cool. And then the next day, they called and canceled. And I heard the owner of my company outright lie to them. He said, well, I've already ordered materials for this job. He hadn't. He said, if you cancel this, I'm going to be out this much money. He wouldn't. And he basically strong-armed them into not canceling. And that was the end of it for me, understanding that, okay, I am not um, doing the right thing being in this job. Um, but, but really, if you answer those questions and you know the, the career field or the decision that you're making isn't going to cause you to sin, then you're free to choose. And and that's where it's so helpful in understanding that, yeah, these commandments are good. The law is good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. And in our tradition particularly, um, and I think it's just the human condition really, so it's not just unique to apostolic Lutherans, but what we tend to do is we tend to um, do just what the Pharisees did. We make our own other rules and regulations that are fairly easy to keep. The big um, whipping boy would be something like, um, you know, having a computer. You know, it is so easy for me not to have a computer, and I can make some of those rules and say, yeah, it's better for Christians not to do this, better not to do that, and some of that might be true. Um, but in all reality, what we do when we make those man-made regulations is we we make the law into something that we cannot keep, um, or sorry, we 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 take something that we cannot keep. And start making rules that we can, and so we just slowly lower the bar until it fits. And the problem with that is you have to keep lowering the bar. So you have to keep adding in rules, because um, you know, 20 years ago, it was easy not to have a computer. But now it's a lot harder, the way society has evolved, or a radio or things like that. Um, so I cannot have a computer, I cannot have a radio, and that would be fairly um, easy for me to accomplish though it would make my life more difficult in some areas. But can I stop myself from lusting? Can I stop myself from coveting? No, I cannot. And so this law then brings us to the end of ourselves and shows us that we are in fact unable to live up to God's command. One thing that I found interesting about these commandments is um, that they're numbered differently in, in some different tra- traditions, Jason. Do you do you know why the uh, like if I go to a Christian bookstore and buy a plaque with the Ten Commandments, that sometimes it's going to be different than the ones that I grew up with in my catechism?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really really good question. Um, and, and if if you go back and and you you go to God's giving of the law there to Moses on on Mount Sinai. Um, it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to count and to number exactly 10 commandments. And, 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 you know, some people say, well, then why in the world do you make it 10? Why don't you make it 9 or 11 or however it just reads naturally and most easily? Well, we say scripture interprets scripture. And when we go to places like Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, verse 13, Moses, as, as he is recapitulating uh, the, the people's need for faithfulness to the law that, that God had given them. He said, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Um, so it's actually internal to the Bible, this reference to its ten words, ten, ten words that are given, or, or ten commandments, as, as we understand it. Uh, and, and, and simply because it, it mentions them as being ten, we're left then to try and, and and figure out a numbering system depending on how you how you count what is an actual word or what is a command and and so you'll find some little subtle variations in, in the way that they are but but what you won't find is anything uh, substantively different that, that you will you will find that that all of the various numbering systems of of the commandments still have all of the same uh, uh, parts, whether they they split one into two or combine and then combine two others into one, it's all still there. Um, so, so even with the different numberings, nothing is lacking. Uh, just maybe save the, the mnemonic devices of, of the, the easy to remember.
0: Um, verses. Uh, there are some doctrinal statements that are kind of made like the, the biggest difference is what you'll find is the Lutherans and the Catholic Church have the numbering that is in our catechism. Um, where the the last commandment against covening is split into two parts, and the Reformed Church and the you know and what you would, I guess we would refer to as most evangelical American churches would have it as the um, the commandment against um, oh what is it? There, there's a, a commandment against having graven images, which we would lump into idolatry.
1: Um, but one correct, thing we we put that in with the first. Yeah, right.
0: One thing I heard from one of my um, I do a Pastor study that's currently on pause because of covid but um one of the um pastors there um it's a lutheran confession study actually um we were talking about this and he said that he really prefers the way um and he just referred to um that the um the jewish people um do it or the jewish rabbis or something and he, he what he said was is um they when they write about the ten commandments that or at least i might be misremembering this a little bit but he said that they they look at it as the 10 words or the 10 sayings, which if I understand in Hebrew, um, that's where, how they are laid out. I think they are referred back to as commandments. And he said that they looked at the first one being, I am the Lord thy God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then the second yeah. one being, thou shall have no other gods before me. Correct, yeah. And um, so I, I, anyway, I found that to be pretty fascinating.
1: yeah and and, and again there that's one of those things where there can be a difference, but it doesn't materially change anything for us in the in god's word
2: so the the ten commandments or the commandments uh themselves they they do seem fairly straightforward you know don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery they're kind of they're right on the nose they're very uh they, they almost seem self-explanatory but I think that that Feeling is probably more so because we're steeped in it from a very young age. Like this is uh, kind of the basis for a lot of the laws that are that are made for you know across the land. Um, so, did, you know, before the Ten Commandments, did people really not think it was bad to murder, steal, etc.?
1: Oh yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Um, and 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 for that we can we can very easily uh, go into to early in Romans uh, where, where, where Paul addresses specifically that thing. Um, and, 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 and that's exactly what he's gonna talk about. What, what he's going to make clear in these words is that human beings being created in the image of God have written into our very fiber of our existence this knowledge that there is right and wrong, good and evil. And then we uh, need to categorize or, or find some system for, for determining what those are. Um, so so uh, Paul deals with it this way in Romans uh, chapter two, starting in verse 14. He says, for when Gentiles, that is just unbelievers who, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. <laughs> now, what, what what's really interesting about that is I, I, I have heard uh, uh, Christians use those exact verses to basically say that those who have not heard the gospel, and so have not had the, as they would put it, chance to uh, to, to, to know and to decide uh, wh- whether or not to accept or, or reject salvation through Christ, um, th- that, they have a, that they have a conscience of, of their own. It, it either accuses them or it excuses them. Uh, but that's not at all what Paul is getting at. Paul, Paul is not saying that, that they are then, uh, if they're excused by their consciences, then they are excused before God. But rather that he's simply saying that they have a conscience, and all human beings have a conscience, that, uh, that, that our conscience is what accuses us or excuses us. And one of the fundamental uh, uses of the Ten Commandments in us is that they calibrate the conscience. Uh, the, 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 the human conscience is, is very easily and perpetually knocked out of alignment. It is easily influenced uh, by, by, by our own thoughts and, and, and by, by external um, thoughts and, 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 and other forces. Uh, and, and so what we find is, is an absolute need to be continually recalibrated in light of this clear revelation of God's will, uh, where, where we can determine... Not, not do I think a certain thing is right or wrong, but according to God, the creator, is that thing right or wrong? Uh,
0: one thing that we, we kind of find ourselves getting into then is um, theologians have uh, called it that there's three uses to the law. Um, could, you, could you talk about that a little bit? How does, how does God, and, and it's important when you talk about the use of the law, that it's not man who does this, but this is God working. But, but what are can you, can you talk about the three uses of the law? And um, the third one is a little controversial, but I, I don't really think it needs to be. But, but could you elaborate on that? Well, Nick, I, I think that you did the very helpful thing by
1: indicating that, at, that the way that God's word is used is not at the hands of a person. Uh, that, that, that it's not a person then wielding it and determining how it's used, but rather that it is God himself who uses his word in, in uh, three very distinct ways. And, and the way that we, we typically deal with that when we're talking in, um, in confirmation class or in Sunday school is, is we use the pictures of a curb, a mirror, and a guide. Um, and, and and what we find uh, there in Romans is... is Paul's making it very clear that that God has written the idea of right and wrong and some very general categories like not murdering and things like that into the the human mind and understanding. Um, And in that way, evil, sin, is curbed. Uh, so people look around, and they say, look at how bad the world is. Look at how much sin there is in the world. Um, and, and, and we simply have to look at, at the Bible and say, if it were not for the fact that God curbed sin in the world, even, through, even in unbelievers, um, that, that it would be infinitely worse than any, anything we can imagine. But then this, it's, it's actually the second use of the law that is what we call the, the chief theological purpose of the law. Uh, that, that God has given his law, not so that we could determine how to become righteous, but rather to act as a good mirror, because the human being will always try and justify ourselves. We will always, always try and make ourselves righteous. We'll, we'll try and draw the line just so that we're inside of it on, on, on the right side, uh, but but, the, but the, the law of God is a, is a very clear mirror that when you look into it and you understand what it actually says, and we'll, we, hopefully we'll, we'll get into a little bit of what it actually says because it's way more than just it seems like on the surface, then you find out that there's no way of being righteous on your own. You can't even come close. And that then drives you in desperation for a savior from, from salvation coming from the outside. So, so so the chief theological purpose of the law is that mirror that, that that shows us our true need for a savior, so that we can then hear the gospel, that we can hear the good news that salvation has been given to the world uh, through through the, the work that it was already completed uh, through Jesus Christ as as given uh, by by God's will. And and then that that last use of the law is is one who has been redeemed. One who knows, and and, and Paul will, will say this in, in various places. One who, who is not, um, who, who, who is not under the condemnation of the law anymore. We know that Jesus has bore all that condemnation for us, but we still, desiring to know God's will, uh, uh, look into His law to say, then how do we live? Uh, and 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 it's pretty much all of the the epistles. If you go into the Bible, the epistles, just, just lay this out where, where Paul and the other writers will, will tell people, they'll call, they'll call them believers. They'll say, you are believers. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I thank God when I think of you. Now knock this off. You're doing this wrong. Or commending them, saying you're doing this well um, and, and, and continue uh, to, to hold fast in that way. So, so they are also um, a, a guide for the Christian to know God's will in our lives. So if you say, hey, I, I want to know, like you said, Nick. I want to know what does God uh, desire of me in my life. Uh, look, look in there, and, and you'll find it complete.
0: Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, one thing I'd like to do as we as we um, start to wrap up this episode is deal with the commandments themselves. So um, Luther has these very helpful explanations um we all learn them and recite them in confirmation and um they all uh they all begin with the term we should fear and love god that we may or may not in whatever commandment he's talking about um when i was a kid i looked at that fear and love god in a a sense that um uh i looked at it without really understanding what he was talking about so um Jason, could you um, maybe talk about the understanding of um, what Luther's getting at when in his explanation to the commandment, he says, um, like to the one about bearing false witness, he says, we should fear and love God that we may not be lie, betray or slander our neighbor, but instead speak well of him and put the best construction on all that he does. Um, what does he mean by um, fear and love? So one of the things that we really have to understand,
1: and, and maybe in a future podcast, we'll, we'll be able to dive, take a deep dive into uh, the, the, the commandments because there's so much in them. But, but what we have to understand is they are not a disjointed list of rules. Um, and, and, and they can almost seem like that on the surface. But if you actually start to study them, there is a full uh, a, a cohesiveness uh, behind all of them. And, and one thing that, that theologians will often point out is that all of them hinge on the first. If you ever break any of the other commandments, you are always breaking the first commandment because you are not fearing, loving, and trusting God above all things, but you are placing something else, whether it's your own reason, your own mm-hmm. desires, your own pleasures, uh, uh, you're, you're placing something or someone one else into that place of God. Um, and, and so all the commandments circle around and have to look back at that first commandment and say, you shall have no other gods. You will recognize him as God, the one who, the one who uh, 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 as Jesus will say, don't, don't fear those who can only kill your body, but fear him who can not only kill your body, but, but is able to, to then send you into everlasting punishment. Um, so the fear of God is just a, a righteous acknowledgement that he is God, but it's also love. It's not a fear of truly being afraid because it's love, knowing that, that we are already uh, redeemed and reconciled to him, blessed children of his through Jesus Christ, our savior. Um, so, so with any commandment, while we're uh, looking at them, we, we just keep that, that fear and love of God foremost. Um, and then as that is central, then, then all of the others simply say, well, then, then God, you are God. I am not. Tell me your will. And if I don't like it, I need to change. Uh, amen. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and and one of the things that this is kind of an interesting kind of device that Luther is using in the Catechism to to have some repetition, as you said, Jason. It reinforces that that and connects it to that first commandment. Um, but I, I went and actually looked up the you know Der Kleiner Catechismus, which is the uh, the actual German version of it. And because I was curious, like, is this just an Englishification that happened, or did he actually say this? And it actually says, Wir sollen Gott fürchen und lieben, which I've, I have a couple of years of German. I, I, it, it means literally, we should God fear and love, which is, you know, the way you would say it in German, but it is, we should fear and love God. And uh, yeah. it says that on each of these every time uh, that you can see it on each of those commandments in the original German, uh, he, he absolutely meant to put it there. And it, it did survive through to uh, our Sunday schools. And if someone is German and listened to me, butcher that, uh, accent, I am sorry.
0: Generally theologians break up, uh, the law into tables. Are, are you, You're familiar with that distinction, right, Jason? Right. So the, the first table, yeah, so could you speak to that a little bit and then maybe talk about each table? Sure. So, so very
1: briefly, the, the first three commandments we call the first table of the law, uh, those uh, make clear to us who God is, who we are, and our relationship and our obligations to Him. The second table of the law, the, the remaining seven commandments, Tell us since we know who we are, it instructs us who our neighbor is and it it, it tells us what our relationship and obligations towards them are. And the reason why this is is, is so necessary and that the commandments are so necessary, um, if you look back all the way to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve only needed one command. We need quite a bit more. And that's because once sin entered the world, sin is, uh, theologically speaking, a turning in upon oneself, it is is thinking of yourself as being the supreme and the highest uh, arbiter of right, wrong, good, and evil. Um, and, and, And so God's law is necessary to come in and to tell us we are not the arbiter of good and evil, God is. And then he is going to explain to us that rather than being inward focused, he would turn us to be outward focused, first of all, to him, and then also flowing out that to our neighbors in, in our daily lives.
0: Uh, finally, Jason, one of, the, one of the biggest struggles, I think, for people when they read the catechism, particularly this section of the law, is the close of the commandments, where um, Luther says this. He quotes from the scriptures, and then he has this excl- explanation. "Or I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments, Exodus 25 to six. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. Now, people look at that and, um, there's, there's um, some misguided idea that somehow there's generational sins that God will um, punish the child for the sins of the father. I I don't think this is, I have my own ideas as to what he's getting at here, but um, uh, and, and then um, it almost sounds though that in the, what does this mean section that Luther is, you know, saying the opposite of what we've said here, that it's um, that this is something that you can attain salvation by keeping. So um, would you, uh, would you uh, elaborate on that?
1: I think that, that Luther does a, the biblically accurate thing, which is always pointing us towards our need for a savior. There is life in the keeping of the commandments. The Bible is clear. If you can keep the commandments perfectly, then by that righteousness, you can live. But the clear uh, uh, understanding of the commandments tells us that none of us can, and that that continually through our entire lives, Points us back towards faith in Jesus Christ, the only righteousness, or the only righteous one who kept the commandments and then also paid for the, 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 the wrath, uh, the, the debt of wrath that, that was due to us for, for our own uh, breaking of the commandments. And uh, so that's why the, the Christian life is not a, I have believed and now I'm, I'm just on, on the road uh, and, and, and I do whatever I want. But the Christian life is one of daily repentance and faith. Acknowledging ourselves to be sinners—that's why, uh, e- e- that, thats why Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, puts on the lips of all believers on a frequent basis these words: "Forgive us our trespasses." So we should always be aware of our sin in our lives. Um, we should we should always. Uh, I, I like the way you had uh, Pastor Travis Sepala on. A, uh, a, a few episodes ago, where he said, the word of God reads us. And we as believers say, uh, I, I welcome that. So, so when God's commandments uh, are turned towards me, I like to tell people that, that if you're uncomfortable every now and again in hearing God's word, that's a good place. Uh, because that is God's word reading you, exposing to you something that was uh, maybe you had a blind spot to before and it, putting its finger on something you've grown comfortable with, but that God would not have in your life and not have you be comfortable with, uh, but, but, but would rather have you turn in repentance. Once again, a frequent and continual uh, aspect of our faith. And then uh, the, the, the two sides of repentance come in. It's not only sorrow and contrition over sin, turning away from it, but in that exact same move, the turn away from sin, must be a turn then towards our Savior Jesus Christ and full faith and confidence that we are saved because he has kept the commandments perfectly on our behalf um, and, and and we have received his righteousness and are counted as righteous before God on account of him.
0: Yeah, that's, that's marvelous. So um, one thing that I think people um, struggle with is the idea that... Um, children can be punished for the sins of their fathers, and they feel like Luther is giving credence to that idea. I think it's important to note that um, that text from Exodus doesn't necessarily mean that God punishes children for their father's behavior. Children often end up falling into the same sins that their fathers or mothers are struggling with, that there is repercussions and consequences that that, uh, you know, an alcoholic father or an abusive father who abuses his children, a lot of those, it causes issues in those kids that they start m- um, manifesting and doing the same behavior. But I also think it's important to note that in this text, the context is idolatry. And it says that the punishment for that would be visited upon the children. And so the idea being that um, when you're going off after other gods, then your children are not going to have a solid foundation of faith. And that even though that is at your charge, even though that is your fault as a father, the kids are going to suffer for it. Um, so don't let this section of the commandments um, cause you to struggle or, or, or don't listen to the people that will try and frame it in a different way. But the, the whole point of Luther wrapping this up is just as you said, Jason, to, to, um, to point us back to what God's word says. Um, and, and I think that's so important because in our day and age, um, we're, we we go back to what I tend to think of as, um, uh, the, 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 temptation of the garden, you know, the devil said, you will be like God and you will know good and evil. And uh, I like to ask my students, what did Adam and Eve know as in far as, as far as what good and evil was before they ate of the fruit? And, and they always usually get it right. They always say, well, they, they just knew God and, and. And that's kind of what I think we should be striving for. Our day and age, we say, well, this has to make sense in order for me to believe it. Um, But really, it just has to come from God, and then we should receive it. But now, instead, we measure God against um, our knowledge of good and evil and say, well, God wouldn't do it that way. Or, well, no, it can't be like that. And we judge him and say that he's actually evil or terrible or all these different things right <laughs> uh, one church father um, said i do not seek to understand in order that i may believe instead i believe that i may understand and you might have heard me say that before but that's because it is so important and this is all about our use of reason do we have a use of reason that comes to the scriptures and places ourselves above it Or do we place ourselves under it and let it inform our worldview, as Jason said, let it be our final authority, let it determine what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's true, and what's false. And if we do that, then that is in line with that first commandment of fearing, loving, and trusting in God. And I think that's as good of a place to stop as any. Unfortunately, we have some time constraints on this episode, so we're out of time. Jamin and Jason, it was great having you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode of the podcast was brought to you by the Eastern Mission. So thank you, Eastern Mission. We certainly appreciate your support. Um, Of course, our goal is to become listener supported. So if you'd like to join us in that, you can click on the Patreon link in the description. And of course, we'd also appreciate your support and prayer. Well, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, God's peace.